Hi, I'm Trip. I spent the first part of the 21st century as a film snob, rejecting any sort of mainstream comedy. And I'm Ross. I'm slowly, film by film, taking Trip through the films he sadly dismissed or smartly avoided until now. Welcome to A Trip Through Comedy, a podcast examining studio comedies from around the turn of the century. And Ross, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Trip. We are we... starting the year off with uh with quite quite the film here. We are Trip. Our <laughs> our exit today has us buying some artwork from the mob. This week we are discussing as our first episode of 2024, Mickey Blue Eyes, written by Adam Scheinman and Robert Kuhn and directed by Kelly Macon. The film centers around Michael Felgate a high-end art auctioneer who is about to ask the woman he loves, Gina Vitale, to marry him. However, when he proposes, she tells him she can't marry him and runs away. He finally catches up with her and finds out the reason she said no. Her entire family is involved in the mafia, and she doesn't want Michael to be caught up with them. Michael promises that together as a team, they will try to not get involved in the family business, but that promise is immediately broken when he agrees to auction off the work of Johnny Gracioso, Johnny Graciosi, the son of a massive mob boss, at the behest of Gina's father, Frank. This plot ends up turning out to be a money laundering scheme. Things spiral quickly, including Gina killing Johnny, Michael taking the blame to protect her, and Johnny's father, Vito, forcing Frank to kill Michael at Michael and Gina's wedding. Whew. However, with the help of the FBI, they are able to get Vito and company arrested while faking Gina's death. Michael and Gina agreed to tr get truly married, and it's happily ever after. So, Trip, did this movie make you laugh, or did it feel like a squib to the chest? No to neither, because I didn't really laugh much, but a squib to the chest would have been much more exciting than anything <laughs> that happens in this movie. You read the plot description and i feel like it's an entirely different movie because all of those moments are just so dully put together that like there's no excitement in this movie even when people are dying and threatening each other it's a mob comedy after all but like this is just a very one note dull movie did you find it that way yeah you know it's interesting we we've already done one mob movie this season, right? And, and analyze you, this. You can't help but watch this movie and not think about analyze this. Oh, yeah. Because it feels like it was like made in the wake of analyze this. But of course, it only comes out, what, six months later or five months later. So obviously yeah, the they makers were of this... in production at the same time. Yeah, this ma the makers of this movie should have immediately realized that they were in trouble when they saw yeah. Analyze This and were like, oh dear God, somebody took kind of the same idea, right? It's a person who isn't involved in the mob being dragged into the mob there is a climax at a wedding. Like, mm -hmm. there is so much of these sort, including also actors who are in both movies. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of carryover. And we also have done one Hugh Grant movie this year, also mm -hmm. during this season. And it's, in this case, it is the lesser version of both of those things. This oh, is yeah. This is a lesser Hugh Grant performance. It is a lesser mafia comedy. It, it is... Like, even as I was just reading that plot synopsis, which I wrote, I started losing the thread even as I was reading it. Because it's just kind of like, right, that is what's happening here. And it just does not use a talented group of people um, oh, definitely. to their full potentials. I, I think it absolutely underutilizes everybody. 
And a lot of it is like Hugh Grant and James Kahn and Gene Triplehorn, a favorite of mine throughout the 90s, who I think was never given her due and is always wonderful. But like all three of them just seem bored from step one of this movie and not putting any sort of effort into it. And so the whole thing just falls flat. You you talk about like analyze this. And granted, these are both big studio comedies, right? You know that neither Billy Crystal nor Hugh Grant are ever in any real danger, right? Yeah. Watching it from a viewer's eyes, right? We know that this is all going to end up in some sort of happy ending. That's just the way these movies work. But yet you still feel the threat of Robert De Niro and cohorts in Analyze This, and Chaz Palminteri in Analyze This, right? Who's not even playing the comedy, who's just being threatening. Versus this movie where I never really felt anybody was in danger. And the few times there is danger, they undercut it so quickly that there's nothing going on. Well, I think some of this comes from the fact that you have, you know, two writers who collectively don't have many movies that really get made. You know, Robert Kuhn, this is the last script he works on and essentially only had made two other movies before this adam scheinman had made one other script before this which the child of the 90s and me has to mention is little big league a great (laughs) children's uh you know sports movie but like doesn't do much also after this and this script just is kind of doesn't know what to do even forget about the performances with these characters, I think Gina, Gene Triplehorn is a very fun and great performer who in the 90s, you know, is in basic instinct. She's in The Firm, Reality mm-hmm. Bites, Waterworld, Office Killer. Like, she's doing all of these very mm-hmm. interesting films, and that character just has nothing to do. They don't... It The motivation and what she seems to be doing make no sense. They can't decide who she is, right? Because sometimes she's like the tough mob daughter, but who will stand up to the mob, right? She doesn't want yeah. any part of it. Other times, she's just like a damsel in distress. Like, there's no continuity between her. Just like there's no real continuity between, you know, James Caan uh, yeah. in a lot of the movie. He really seems bored. And then even you have all of these kind of great character actors peppered through this movie most of them like mob guys right like those guys who you see in martin scorsese films of the time and sopranos and all of these wonderful guys that like you know by face that i'm like oh it's it's that guy it's that guy but none of them are given any sort of definition they all just play you know mob guy is like really their role. So I can't tell you the difference between any of them or what makes them unique. And so it all just, it feels like a rough draft that got rushed into production and everyone just took their paycheck and went home. Trip, would it surprise you that the Wikipedia for Mickey Blue Eyes has an entire section called Links to the Sopranos <laughs> and lists nine sure. actors or actresses yeah. that are uh-huh. in both that end up appearing in The Sopranos at some point and yeah. in this movie. Yeah. I mean, even like uh, uh, Aida Taturo pops up at one point as the waitress in the diner. Like, yeah. yeah they, there is a huge crossover. I mean, they also mention, which I, uh, you know, I have not watched much of The Sopranos. It's a massive blind spot for me, which is mm-hmm. a, for another time. Yeah. Uh, you know, but 
supposedly they even mentioned this movie in a season two episode of The Sopranos, making a comment that supposedly to Christopher Moltisani that there isn't a demand for mob-related scripts because of this movie. <laughs> like, yeah, essentially... It killed, it killed the mob movie. There yeah, we go. The Sopranos makes Mickey a comment about how this movie basically kills that. Yeah, it is shocking to me watching this. Like Again, the James Conn thing. I think half the time they're trying to have him be kind of a De Niro thing, right? He's very emotional mm-hmm. the first yeah. time we meet him. And, you, mm-hmm. and there's moments where he seems like that. And so you think they're kind of going down that road, but then they kind of just don't really know like what they want from James Conn. And it's like, you again, it's like, analyze this. You get massive actor from the Godfather franchise, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. To be your main mafia, main massive figure in the Godfather franchise, yeah, in James Caan to be and this really, really talented comedic actor opposite him, right? Mm-hmm. Who is known for being sort of the anti-tough guy, yes. right? And like it just, it was frustrating how boring everything was in this movie, kind of through and through, because yeah. James and James Conn's nineties are filled with him kind of doing these very interesting mm-hmm. acting performances or working with interesting people, right? Yeah. You have it's he's only about three years removed from being in Bottle Rocket, right? Mm-hmm. This Anderson's film. The next year he's in the yards. You know, so you have these like James Conn doing kind of these interesting things, right? He had done Honeymoon in Vegas, which is much more of a better comedy with james con you know kind of doing the same thing exactly this just it's such a weird odd thing that this just doesn't and i think again i think it comes from starts at the script level and it Mm. starts maybe also with the director who you know had done a bunch of tv this is actually the last feature film that kelly macon will do kelly macon basically does four feature films does tiger claws in 91 National Lampoon's Senior Trip in 95. Ooh. I know. Uh, before before the start of this podcast, so don't worry, you don't have to watch it. <laughs> and uh, this is a follow-up to Kids in the Hall Brain Candy, which I guess Kelly had been involved with Kids in the Hall in general. But Kids in the Hall is such a different type of comedy and probably yeah. a process of doing this than this type of movie. Well, and and it's, basically a, it's a sketch comedy. It's a sketch yeah. comedy, right? And this film does... There are some little kind of individual set pieces that are kind of funny where you see some of that light come through, right? There's like the proposal scene with the owner of the Chinese restaurant who's trying to get her to eat the fortune cookie and she doesn't want to. And like it works as its own little like two minute short film, right? Like short little sketch. And there's a couple of those kind of peppered throughout where you can see like, yeah, just put this scene on Kids in the Hall and it would be a funny little sketch, and then we could move on. But none of it is able to cohere, nor are they really able to find any sort of through line. For There's also of just plot lines in this movie that make no sense why it's here. The whole yeah. thing of there's this client that they are trying to get 
to yes. you know, use this auction house. Yeah, the great Mark Margolis. Who? Why is that in this? I don't know. What like, is the keeps, point of this? He keeps popping up. He even comes to the wedding at the end. <laughs> like, it makes no sense. It's, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe Mark Margolis needed to hit his quota for, you know, 1998. So, like, yeah, we'll let you do five days and get your health insurance. But I guess. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a plot line that you keep waiting to find out, oh, he's another mafioso. Or, oh, he's involved yeah. in the FBI. And that's mm. why he's kind of, you know, no. coming here or whatever there is nothing there mm-hmm. is no payoff to it there's no anything it's literally just like a c plot in this movie that makes yeah. no sense and is set up to the idea that like it's just awkward things constantly happen in front of him yep i i don't i don't know it's <sighs> it's such a weirdly structured movie and again it's also just odd that this comes out the same year as analyze this mm-hmm. which just has so many similar things and does it so much more effectively yep. than this movie. Exactly. It's sometimes you have to watch the bad re, the bad version of something to realize how good the good version is, and it is. Yeah. It's like wow, you know, having Harold Ramis maybe and Robert De Niro right there really kind of were able to make that movie something even more or, special than I remember it being. Or Billy Crystal and Robert yeah. De Niro having a chemistry that mm-hmm. vibes. Oh, there's no chemistry between Hugh Grant and James Caan. Like, there's no nuts whatsoever. I do think Hugh Grant is funny in this movie, kind of doing his Hugh Grant thing. Yes. Um, Yes. I I think of the three leads, he comes off the best, just because it seems to suit him very well. And the movie, it's interesting. I noticed right at the beginning, it's produced by Elizabeth Hurley. Yes, I did see that. Were they married at the time or just long-term? They were definitely long-term partners. I don't know if they were ever married, but um, that you could definitely feel like this being pushed as a Hugh Grant vehicle. And I think it does obviously not as good as like a masterpiece like Notting Hill is able to play into him. Absolutely. It plays into his um, strengths, I think, comedically pretty well. And even do some stuff that um, we don't always get to see Hugh Grant do. So just quickly looking on Wikipedia, according to them, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Hurley and Hugh Grant were together from 1987 to 2000. So yeah, this is like towards the end of probably their, but yeah, I think that's, that's definitely, look, would I watch, by the way, a completely separate movie just about Hugh Grant running an auction house? Absolutely. I actually think that would be a fun movie. Yes. Oh, yeah. He and yes, and working with the crazy old lady and. Oh, uh, yeah. Or the, yes, um, it all very, very funny stuff. Yeah, let's make yeah. that movie. Which, well, which I'll let I'll I'll take this opportunity, Ross, just to kind of move us through because um, yeah. I really liked the auction stuff, and I think my supporting turn of this movie is James Fox, who plays the auction house owner or manager or whoever he is. He is Unclear definitely what his job is. Hugh, Hugh Grant's boss or supervisor or whatever. Um, James Fox, a phenomenal British actor, has been around for decades. You know, he pops up in everything from Remains of the Day, Passage to India, he has a big part in, The Servant, um, a movie I really love called King Rat. He's one of the the main guys in that movie from the 60s. Um, a really great POW movie. Um, but he is kind of one of these stalwart British character actors and really just game for sort of making fun of that whole persona that he has in this movie and being really sort of 
goofy throughout all of this and prickly when he needs to be, but then um, also gets really drunk later on and has some fun poking, <laughs> poking some holes in that veneer. Oh, yeah. So I think James Fox, I was always happy when they got back to the auction house and got back to him. And like you said, I think I would have liked the auction house comedy a lot more than anything having to do with the mob. Yes. I, I mean, look, James Fox is fantastic in this movie and, and very fun in when he pops up and gives energy. Despite the all the commentary on the the mob stuff, the person I did highlight as my supporting turn is actually Burt Young. And I think it's because he plays the, I guess, the villain, quote unquote, of this movie. He's right? the head of the family, right? Yes. He's the, yeah, he's the, the Don Corleone to... Yes. yes. And I think there's something to he very similar to Chaz Palminteri, right? And analyze this. He's not really playing for laughs. Mm-hmm. Burt Young is really just playing this mafioso, just straight, and at times exasperated. And mm-hmm. I think part of me is sitting there going, like, I feel like Burt Young knows. I think he knows. And and <laughs> also, I like that they. It is very easy to do that role and do it very over the top. Yeah. And I think he does it a lot more restrained. Burt Young was a great actor. And, you know, mm-hmm. he really kind of has a, a very long history, obviously, in the Rocky franchise and many different things. Also appeared on The Sopranos. And, yeah, he, um, I think he brings a bit of gravitas to this movie. I actually think him and James Caan do have chemistry. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think the scene at that wedding in the climax where James Conn is trying to get him, you know, to set him up, right? Mm-hmm. There is that's maybe the only bit of tension in this movie is Burt Young is being very smart and not saying certain things. And James mm-hmm. Conn is like trying to like get him to say certain things. Burt Young, I think, does work well, and I wish he was given a better movie around him to to be in. I feel I feel like Burt Young like you said, I think he knows maybe this isn't the best movie that he's in, but he's taking his advantage of like, this is my opportunity to play the heavy and to play the mob boss. And I am going to go for it as if this is, this is my Vito Corleone and let's, let's go for it full, full throttle. Oh yeah. So Trip, is there a moment though that did, you know, you talked about kind of these small moments that feel like vignettes that work for you. Yeah. Is there a funniest moment that you had? There, There is one, and that is, um, so the title Mickey Blue Eyes comes from James Caan and Hugh Grant are burying a body and some people come on them. And so James Caan just gives Hugh Grant the name Mickey Blue Eyes, like his gangster name. So then he has to pretend to be this gangster and they go out to lunch with these rival mobsters. And like Hugh Grant is, there's a scene in the car with he and James Conn where James Conn's trying to teach him how to talk like a gangster and Hugh Grant can't do it. And then he goes in and he grunts and he has an accent that is undefinable whatever voice he is doing but it is so hysterical and it's there's the scene in analyze this i think it was your favorite scene in the movie where um billy crystal has to like play the mob boss yes he has to like be de niro and like takes control of the room but this is the complete opposite right yes like i i am just gonna like and it is wonderful and it's a side of Hugh Grant you don't always get to see right like Hugh Grant as sort of like physical comedian in that sort of way is not something we always 
get. And so it was a lot of fun to watch. I did really enjoy that that scene right there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is very interesting to watch Hugh Grant attempt to do this. <laughs> I mean, it is stereotypical, 100%. I mean, they literally use the words like, forget about it. And forget, like, yeah, but then you have to take make some of the T's D's, but not other ones. So he's like, yeah. forget about it. And it's yeah, like, yeah. The yeah. very breakdown For, of like, about act- it less, like it, yeah, and it, it just becomes like, his voice is really like Sylvester Stallone at the end of Rocky when yes. all of his teeth have been knocked out and he's just like, yeah, um, yeah, it's a, yeah, uh, it is. It's a, it's a, a funny little bit. Yeah, it shows yeah. off um, Hugh Grant really well. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I chose. We kind of talked about this that the auction stuff is really fun. I chose as my favorite bit the second auction of these mob paintings. Which look, the mob paintings in general, when you see <laughs> them, which are part of this art therapy of yes. Burt Young's son. Uh, are so stark of like a who the heck is buying this they are a pretty good visual gag like they're yes, a great like, visual gag yes but I the second the second time he is auctioning the these paintings off which builds this whole thing that they kind of had of this older woman who wants to get into art auction you know art and hugh grant as a way to kind of be nice to her is like look when there's something that I think is undervalued and it doesn't seem to be going there, I'm going to give you a signal and you'll do that, which is that he coughs. But of course, he accidentally does it and she starts bidding. And of course, her she has a hearing aid, it falls out. And he keeps trying to do this so that she doesn't you know, bid on the painting. John, this is all supposed to be money laundering. So it's really only supposed to go to the mob's choice of this person who's going to pay. And then it, but then Johnny, who's the artist, actually then realizes or thinks that there is somebody that appreciates his artwork. And so now he doesn't care about this money laundering scheme. He wants his artwork to sell. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it does it's validating this, him. Yeah, it becomes this very kind of comedic thing as Hugh Grant is trying to give the signal of, like, stop bidding to this Mm -hmm. poor old woman. And it is kind of using Hugh Grant's kind of bumbling, fumbling comedic style in a good way. Yeah, and I feel like those are kind of the two moments in the movie, maybe, where it actually chooses a comedic style. It's like, we're going to go for the farce in here. Whereas the rest of the movie, you almost don't know, are they playing it straight or is it some sort of, right? Is this just the, is it a black comedy? Is it a satire? Like, what is it? And those two moments, I think, that we've both highlighted really play up like there is a farcical atmosphere to this. I wish the movie had embraced more absolutely i mean trip is there stuff that you found to be your unfunniest moment that you wanted to highlight yeah so gene Triplehorn has a brother in this movie named richie played by paul lazar he is a face that you know if you see it like you never forget uh he pops up in a lot of jonathan demi stuff and and is a, is a solid solid actor but the way that they portray richie he's supposedly brilliant at one point james Kahn says he has 175 i but he is definitely on the spectrum or falling somewhere and it just it comes across as a real mean portrayal of this character and everyone is always kind of making fun of him and it just there's something there's no point to the character he doesn't do anything really to move anything in the movie across 
yeah, it just, it, it all comes across the wrong way. And Paul Lazar is just, he has a very unique look to him also. And he has these sort of bizarre eyes that only further hurt that interpretation of the character, I think. So I just yeah. really, really sort of irked me. Yeah, I just didn't know what the point of it was. It, yeah. I, it just didn't seem to make much sense. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like several things in this movie. It's like a thread that you're just kind of like, I'm not even sure. It's like a dangling thread that's going to nowhere where you're like, I'm not entirely sure what yeah, the point so let's, is. Yeah, let's just throw in the, the genius, but maybe you know um not smart brother or whatever it is i don't know um it's just it's not treated well so yeah yeah uh i kind of also went with a character that i felt the movie was kind of being just mean to and Mm -hmm. using stereotypes we talked a bit about this the proposal that hugh grant is doing takes place at this chinese restaurant Mm -hmm. and there's an element to this that i actually think is is good comedy right mm-hmm. the they've decided he's going to propose to her by putting this fortune in a fortune cookie and she's going to open it and it's going to say like will you marry me mm-hmm. and they keep trying to get gene Triplehorn to, to eat the cookie she's like i don't i don't want to she she's going to save it for later yeah. yeah and it's becoming now very pushy and yeah. then of course somebody it turns out actually that the fortune's actually at a different table with a couple <laughs> who yeah. then that leads to a whole nother issue but the joke seems to be on this the 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 waitress who's actually the owner of the restaurant that's there turns into it felt like really bad stereotype and it it feels like the movie is just kind of punching at this that's like it's really uncomfortable any of the jokes that are involved with that element to it it just didn't work for me and it kind of left richie to me is also a great answer Mm -hmm. but like that's the other one where i felt like we're taking a character and just kind of seeming like punching down on it in bad stereotypes i think I liked the scenario enough that it is, it's turned up a little too far, I think, on that character. She is played by the great Lori Tanjin, who is always a delight in everything yeah. she, she pops up in. She was on Orange is the New Black for a lot of that run. Um, she recently played one of the aunties in Turning Red. She's one of those, you know, she pops up and you know her and she's always really wonderful. Absolutely. And so I think it was having her, it didn't bother me that much. But I do think that like she's playing it or being directed to play it at like a a higher level of cultural stereotype than maybe it needed because the other jokes around it are so strong that you don't need to also make her a caricature. Yes, that's what I would agree. The stuff around it, the actual Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, gags Mm -hmm. do kind of work. Like it, it is a very funny, you know, kind of thing. And, and G Triplehorn just getting more and more frustrated of like, why is this person like really forcing this fortune yeah. cookie on me? Like this yes. is becoming like a real problem. But yeah, it just it's a weird just element to that scene that just kind of it, it stuck yeah. in my craw a little bit of being like, hey, yeah, um, I can see that definitely, absolutely. So Trip, yeah. uh, our listeners have heard what we think of this movie, uh, which doesn't sound so great, but it's now the part of the show where we. Take a look at what critics and audiences think by guessing the Rotten Tomatoes and Letterboxd score for this movie. So, Trip, what do you think the good critics that Rotten Tomatoes aggregates, um, what do you think the average score is? I don't know. Who, I don't know who out there would be like giving this a high rating. Like, it, I'm going to say it's down in like around 30, let's say 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Get in your answers now. Shout it out. The answer is you're you're too low um it is it is rotten it's 45 percent. okay so, so not not good 
but yeah. not as I think in in the pits as you have it. Uh, mm-hmm. Roger Ebert gave it two stars. And his review said, Mickey Blue Eyes has most of the ingredients in place for another one of those married to the mob comedies, but the central character has to hold it together, and Hugh Grant is wrong for the role. I I don't necessarily disagree. Like, it's kind of an odd... His character just kind of doesn't fully work for this type of movie, uh, to some extent. And Mick LaSalle's San Francisco uh, Chronicle wrote, Mickey Blue Eyes is a two-hour joke that falls flat. Yep, that's yeah. that's that's about it. So yeah, I think they both they both captured it pretty well. That yeah, it, I just feel like there's not much to say here because it just no. all sorts of yeah, yeah, it just doesn't yeah, fully work. Yep. Uh, Trip, what do you think the good and fine users of Letterboxd have as the average rating for this movie? I don't know. Um, the same. So what was that? That was, so let's say they were 45. So that's like halfway there. The two, I'm just stalling now, Ross. Uh, <laughs> two, two point, 2.6. Let's say it's down there. All right. All right. Get in your answers, people listening. Uh, Trip, you are very close. It is a okay. 2.8 oh, average, okay. which I'll be honest, higher than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think that's that is a that that's a little higher than I would have guessed. You know, I jotted down about halfway through this movie. I jotted down, have I seen this before? Because suddenly it all seemed vaguely familiar. And so I feel like this was maybe one of those movies that was just always on TV. And I think maybe I had seen like a 20 or 30 minute chunk at some point and then turned it off. But, you know, maybe that's maybe there's some sort of TBS nostalgia holding on here. Yeah, um, this was one I did see when I was younger. I think I saw mm-hmm. it. I have like a vague memory of being at my cousin's house, like in Montreal, and like seeing this when I was younger, and not really connecting with it then. And rewatching yeah. it, I think I liked it a little bit more, but like not much. Mm-hmm. Um, but so this movie comes out the weekend of August twentieth, nineteen ninety nine. Spoiler alert for next week's episode. Uh, it is the same weekend as our next movie that we'll oh, be talking okay. about. Okay, so we'll do it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So this this segment, I guess, kind of covers this week and next week. Um, it comes out the weekend of August 20th. It has, according to Box Office Mojo, just funny guess, Trip, how much do you think the budget is for this movie? Oh, since you're asking, it's probably going to be something ridiculous, like $80 million or something like that. But Yeah, it's I mean, $75 I think it would be, million. Dollars. Yeah, $75 that's, that's weird. million dollars for this movie. Yeah. I it mean, the wedding is very, the wedding is very nice. Like, sure. um, and there is the really funny scene where like the 30 caterers all pile out of the one catering truck. And so that's a lot of extras to pay for that. Exactly. That I guess, box. uh, so, yeah. this movie, this movie made worldwide about 54.3, a little under 54.3 yeah. million dollars. So does not do well that weekend. The, as I said, next week's episode mm-hmm. is included in this weekend, which is teaching Mrs. Tingle. Um, also new this weekend is universal soldier, the return and only in one theater, but is new this week is the Satoshi Khan film. Perfect blue, which Ooh, just wanted a, to mention. Great, I wish I had seen that uh, opening weekend in the, in the theaters that yeah. I only just caught up to that um, a year or two ago. Yeah. L- lovely, lovely Japanese animated film. So yes, just drop what you're doing now. Go see Perfect Blue, and we're all good. So yeah, yeah. yeah. This yeah. top five also included this weekend: Bowfinger still at number mm-hmm. two, and Runaway Bride at four. Oh, okay. so you know, yeah. holding on there, okay. holding on there. So yeah, so I'm watching this movie. I need a something afterwards. I, is there something maybe a little more exciting that you can find for me to watch along with this? Yeah. So I chose. I I am a big James Con fan. Um, mm-hmm. 
the God. I am a very basic person. The Godfather is my favorite movie of all time, and James Conn yeah. is my favorite part in that movie. And so I love James. I think Conn. I think I might agree. the The first Godfather, I think he he might be the my favorite too. He's so, so yeah. charismatic in that movie, mm-hmm. and so just like you watch, and every moment he's on screen, you you want to watch everything he's doing. And James Conn made so many great movies. We lost him, obviously. I believe it was last year. He made a movie in the seventies called The Gambler. I would like to, once again, clarify, do not try to seek out the Mark Wahlberg movie. I haven't even watched it. You don't need to watch that remake. The original The Gambler is a really fascinating, great James Conn performance about a professor who has a deep gambling problem. And it's kind of, you know, you can watch this and immediately see the Safdie brothers watch this and like we're like, oh, uncut gems. This is it. It's a man who is self-destructive and gambling and just basically ruining his life as he is just going deeper and deeper into mm-hmm. this kind of hole of gambling. Uh, it is one of James Kahn's truly best performances, in my opinion. It's one that I don't think as many people have seen of his, and I don't really know. Yeah, um, I've I've never seen it, so I, yeah. it's, a, it's a blind spot for me, just sort of, and I feel like, I don't even know if I'd even heard of it until uh, when he passed away, and it kind of, people kept mentioning it as one of their favorites, and so I, I added it to the ever-growing watch list then, but have never caught up with it, so yeah, I- Yeah, uh, would definitely recommend I, uh, you I want check to, it out. Yeah, but, but also different than the Kenny Rogers yes. movies, right? Yeah, not so, not so associated does, with the Kenny James Rogers. Con, does James Conn know when to hold him and know when to fold him? Uh, I, no, no when no, to walk away. No, no when to run. <laughs> no, he does not. Uh, deep, yeah. debilitating. Uh, he better count his right. blessings. Yes, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely recommend. It. And again, if yeah. you're also a fan of Uncut Gems, it is very similar of watching a self-destructive gambling oh, okay. act, basically. You know, go down the tubes. There we go. Um, w- w- will it give me a panic attack like Uncut Gems? No, I don't think it's okay. as I, I don't think it's as propulsive necessarily as Uncut Gems, which feels like an, a constant like it's constantly going and going and going, and it builds that up. Um, I think it is just it's a really good '70s style like character study of a person who just it, it doesn't matter. Like he's going to <laughs> it, it, he can't accept. Like just it's going to constantly losing and losing and but trip. What would you suggest people watch? So you know, I, I mentioned earlier. I think this movie is best kind of when it plays up the farcical elements of all of this. And I guess that's what I really kept hoping that the movie would just kind of go out and be like an all-out like mob farce. And so it kept making me think of another movie about a uh, man trying to marry a mobster's daughter that turns into full farce. And you want to talk about an underused cast in this movie? Imagine an ensemble that involves. Marissa Tomei, Ornella Muti, Tim Curry, Peter Reigert, Chaz Palminteri, Martin Ferrero, Harry Shearer, Kirk Douglas, Paul Greco, Ivan DiCarlo, Don Ameche, William Atherton, Ken Howard, Eddie Bracken, Kurtwood Smith. Like, that is an amazing ensemble. Backing up Sylvester Stallone in John Landis's Oscar. I love this movie, Ross. I think most people would probably rate it at or below Mickey Blue Eyes. For some reason, this movie is a punching bag, and I loved this movie as a kid. My sister and I once drove all the way, uh, rode in the backseat from Illinois to West Virginia with a little TV and a VCR and played this movie on loop and drove my poor mother batty. But this is a wonderful 
just clever, funny farce that doesn't try to do anything else. But the stakes are real in this movie. The characters are memorable yet ridiculous. Um, it manages to give all of these characters something to kind of hook us into them rather than making them all just random mob bosses. Um, and I think it's just, it's a really funny, delightful farce. And so I think I would just say skip Mickey Blue Eyes and just watch Oscar instead because I think it's it's an underrated, underrated movie. I mean, you have me at Tim Curry, but uh, just so you know, I've, I'm look, looking this up on Letterboxd. It has an average of three, so technically okay. better than Mickey Blue Eyes. Better, better. I feel like it has had a little bit of a, of a resurgence. Um, I want to say it was uh, Drew McQueenie who played it on screen drafts on like the Sylvester Stallone draft or whatever they did, and I was so excited that, that people are sort of rediscovering it, I think. Tim Curry, by the way, pretty much um, Henry Higgins in this movie, um, trying to teach... Uh, Sylvester Stallone, how to talk right in scenes that are even funnier than uh, than Hugh Grant in uh, Mickey Blue Eyes. So interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, Ron Tomatoes, by the way, not helping you. It's eleven percent. Only eighteen yeah, views. The, but... Yeah, at at the time, really, really was trashed. But um, yeah, I think as it's John Landis. It's it's an adorable little film. So uh, one of those movies that I quote all the time, and no one knows that I'm quoting it, and that is that is fine. So yes. I'm very intrigued. I'm adding it to the watch list. I've never seen it. It it is on Hoopla right now. So you can go go check it out. So yes. Or I may still have my VHS copy, Ross. I can. There we, I, I, can I have a VHS to, player in the mail. Here. So yeah, I there have a VHS. So. Keep circulating those tapes. Um, yes. <laughs> Trip, you're staring at those gray stars on Letterbox. You're turning them green. What in the end is your final rating for Mickey Blue Eyes? Um, I think I'm just going to go two stars. Like it's just it's a boring little movie. It's nothing offensive. It's just sort of there. I got some chuckles out of it. Um, but yeah. Two stars. Yeah, I'm kind of around there. I gave it two and a half. I will say, like, in general, like, I didn't find the movie, like, like it was so painful to watch or, like, it was, like, you know, it kind of flew by. And some of it's because of the fact that the plot seems to kind of just, like, move at a pace where you're like, what? Yeah, um, sk- when you skip over all of the, like, interesting parts of the plot and just, yeah. hit the, you know, yeah, just the hit greatest hits. Which, yeah, there we go. Exactly. But, yeah, I kind of gave it two and a half. But, again, like... I'm not really recommending this. I don't think either of us really are. No, I don't think so. Yeah, two and a half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there something better on the horizon next week, Ross? Well, we'll see. We'll see, Trip. Okay. Oh, there we go. Um, okay. Next week, we will be talking about Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which is available to stream as of the recording of this on Paramount Plus Hoopla. Hey, Hoopla's Hoopla. back. There we go. And Pluto Hoopla TV. double feature. Yeah, Hoopla Double Feature, Oscar and teaching Mrs. Dingle. Please write in. If you end up doing that, please write in to us and tell use, us what use, your experience use is. Use all your, all your early January Hoopla credits on, 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 on Oscar and teaching Mrs. Dingle. It's also available on Pluto TV, or you can rent it on Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube. Or, as uh, we support physical media and local libraries, you could try to see if it's available at your local library on DVD. So, trip. What do you know, if anything, outside of what I've already told you of teaching Mrs. Tingle that it came out the same weekend as this yeah. movie? Yes. So I can picture the poster of this. So it's like a black and white, like Helen Mirren, and she's holding like the bright red apple. And it's part of that. There was this weird late 90s, like mini genre of evil teacher movies. So I know this fits in here. This isn't the one where the teachers are aliens. 
No. No, no, that's something else. And it's not, there's also the Stephen King one where like the, the teacher's a Nazi, like apt pupil or whatever. Oh yeah, no, and very that's something. Different. That's something different. So yes. I I want to say that she is some sort of like um Matilda Miss Trunchable esque like evil teacher who tortures the kids. Maybe she's like an alien Nazi. I don't know. Maybe it, it mixes all of them together. But she um Oof. she she definitely is like a horrible teacher and uh the kids uh seek revenge on her. Maybe it'll be like a home alone in a school where like they they sneak into the school and, and torture her and she gets her comeuppance at the end. So I so I will tell you number one, uh the person holding the apple in the poster is actually none other than Katie Holmes. Helen Mirren, not on the poster. Oh, uh, oh okay. Surprise! So Helen Mirren I, I, Yeah, I Mandela affected that poster. Yeah, so yeah I would yeah. have sworn that it was Helen Mirren holding an apple. Like, I and, can picture it vividly. And to be fair, you did ask, is this the one where all the teachers are aliens? To at least connect them, they are both written by Kevin Williamson. The movie you were thinking of is The Faculty. Oh, the Faculty, which is, okay. Which oh, is uh, also Screams. a Kevin Williamson. Yeah. Scream and Dawson's Creeks, Kevin Williamson. So, Kevin yeah. Williamson. So yes, awesome. we will be talking uh, all things Kevin Williamson next week when we talk about teaching I Mrs. Do, Tingle. I do love me some Kevin Williamson, although I've also never seen The Faculty. So um, as I guess I guess we just learned. That's always been one I've I've wanted to check out. I don't know why I didn't realize this was him too. So uh, um, we, I'm excited. We may, we may talk a little little faculty a little faculty uh, this sounds this sounds week. like it could be it could be a cool little movie so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i do i do love me a dame so um hey who doesn't love Helen Mirren. Mirren. i know exactly but until then trip where can people find you on the interwebs yeah i i am currently uh out there all over the internet auctioning off my my paintings <laughs> by my very bizarre uh i my art therapy from having to watch all these movies with Ross is that I, I paint these these very weird movies uh, or paintings of people destroying VHS copies of Lost and Found and uh, and Ed TV. So, uh, but I am all over on Twitter or Blue Sky. Um, let's get Blue Sky happening, everybody. Let's let's yeah. get that get that community up. It's a much much nicer place to be, everybody. It's wonderful. I love it over there. Uh, but I'm at Trip Burton 13 all over those, uh, as well as on Letterboxd. Uh, Ross, what about you? You can find me on Twitter, Blue Sky, Threads. Let's make Threads happen. I don't know. I can't even say that with a straight face fully. We're on Letterboxd at R Bratton. Yeah, the show is also at all those places, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, uh, at A-T-T-C pod. Uh, you can also always email us your your long or short-term thoughts. That's a trip through comedy at gmail.com. Remember, trip has two Ps. Again, if you if you do that hoopla double feature, please, please write in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or if you just watch Oscar, e- email <laughs> me to let me know. Or yeah. Send your Oscar thoughts. And by yes. that, we mean the Sylvester Stallone movie, not the Academy Awards. I would also love to hear your Academy Award thoughts. So Dang, yeah, there you know, we are. I uh, know ex- ex- exactly. Ross, we are at the at the beginning of the new year. Yeah, you really fast. I know we both have some stuff to catch up with. What is your movie of 2023 so far? As of have, this recording, yeah. As of this recording, uh, my number one movie is is Past Lives from this year. 
past lives just hit me like a ton of bricks in so many great ways. That is really high up for me too. I do. I do love that movie. Do you have mine is actually mine. Mine is one that I saw on a double feature with past lives. Um, But I think mine is asteroid city. So that that movie blew me away in a way that Wes Anderson hasn't in, in a while. So I really think it's, it's baby his masterpiece or one of them. So uh, yeah, I do. I love that movie. See, if you stay to the end of these episodes, you get extra recommendations. There, this is, there this you go. Yes. Yeah, d- definitely. Uh, yes. So our theme music is So Alive, instrumental by John Worthy Music. You can find his work wherever you listen to music or at the Free Music Archive. And as always, we will see you farther along down the road in 2024. The, the end.